Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Jed Emerson originated the concepts of blended value and total portfolio management that underlie the modern impact investing landscape and currently serves as global lead impact investing for Tiedman Advisors, a wealth manager with over $25 billion of assets under management. Instead of launching an institute or new organization to promote the idea that we need new forms of organization and capital to advance our community's vision, he has used his academic appointments at Stanford, Harvard, and Oxford Business Schools to promote new ideas regarding capital and what we now call impact investing, having co-authored the first book on the topic. He has been a team member in launching such leading organizations as Impact Assets and served as a founding board member of Pacific Community Ventures. He is currently a senior fellow with Impact Assets, Zurich University's Blended Finance Initiative, and University of Heidelberg Center for Social Investment. Jed spent 22 years in a portfolio lifestyle as an academic thought leader and advisor, but joined Tiedman after experiencing the COVID lockdown in New York City, witnessing the continuing climate crisis, and such inequalities as George Floyd's murder left him feeling that he had to raise the bar on his own work and collaborate with others to bring capital at scale to respond to social and environmental issues that are at scale. He continues to teach by quoting wisdom from Buddhist scriptures. Don't just do something, sit there. To Martin Luther King Jr., we're at risk of having guided missiles, but misguided men, and brings a historical perspective, tracing the first impact investing decision to Mennonite shareholders rejecting the rapacious acts of the Dutch East India Company. Jed began his career as founding director of Larkin Street Services, a program serving homeless youth in San Francisco Bay Area, and founding director of Red F, a venture philanthropy investing exclusively in social enterprises, employing and empowering people overcoming barriers to work. Jed Emerson, welcome to the Better Money, Better World podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, you have started or led, as many of our listeners know, some of the most important innovations in impact investing and the rise of sustainable investing. But you've always been independent, uh, a professor, a thought leader, an advisor. Uh, why did you, Jed Emerson, decide to join Tiedman? 
Well, it, it actually is connected with uh, why I spent the last uh, 22 years without a job. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you unemployable? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that, that's what they told me. Um, I had done a research project at Stanford Business School on the nature of value and in particular, the notion of blended value, the idea that value is fundamentally whole, non-divisible. Uh, it has component parts of social, economic, and environmental factors. But um, part of, I, I, I kind of woke up at the end of the 90s and realized that I was having the same conversation with different people, all of whom thought they were very unique and different. But to my mind, they were all the same. And so whether it was a for-profit, mission-driven investor or a venture philanthropist or a nonprofit social entrepreneur or you know a Ben and Jerry's kind of guy, um, to me, it was all the same thing. And what was the problem was that these folks were all looking at it from their silo as to where they entered. Because, you know, like where you stand depends on where you sit. And so a lot of these folks, I felt, were really dealing with a bifurcated value proposition and the limitations of that, where it asks you to either do well or do good, make money or uh, give it away. I mean, like this very kind of segmented thing. You work for a nonprofit or a for profit. And I think in the 90s, I was lucky enough to be a part of a generation of folks who basically were kind of blowing through those boundaries, looking at how do you use companies to advance more than just financial performance and how do you use capital to advance more than just financial return. And so uh, I did this research piece. And uh, the folks who funded it, a variety of you know foundations you would know and love. Um, at the end of the research, they said, you know, you should, you should start the Blended Value Institute because these are really important ideas. They're, clearly, they're part of something that's happening. We're not sure what it is, but something's going on. And this is uh, 2002, 3, 4, kind of in there. And, um, and I said, great, I'd love to, to launch the Blended Value Institute. Will you endow the institute? Because I'm, I've already done the fundraising thing. I mean, one of the reasons I left the traditional nonprofit sector was I felt that, you know, in that community, with all respect, you know, capital kind of moves on the basis of politics, perception and persuasion and not performance, right? And so I didn't want to get onto this track of having to raise philanthropic money to fund this institute. And they all said, no, 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 we'll give you three years operating support to launch and then you have to raise the money yourself. And I was like, look, I've you know, fucking done this before. I'm not going to go down that route. And so I decided at that time that what I wanted to do really was not create my own entity, but rather find people, regardless of whether or not they use my language, who are exploring these ideas and slot in behind them and try to you know, help support and be a part of that process. And so that ended up, uh, I mean, literally for about 22 years of having a portfolio lifestyle. Uh, I did work with Generation Investment Management out of London, I did work with a variety of uh, uh, family offices that were exploring, you know, what does it mean to do total portfolio management? Uh, I, I respect folks who do carve outs as kind of on ramps to impact. But for me, I felt like my life is all in and I only wanted to work with families who are willing to kind of manage all of their assets on an impact basis. And so um, that was that track record, which brings us then to the pandemic and to COVID and the lockdowns. And I think we all kind of have come out of those experiences in our own ways with our own lessons. But for me, I felt that I had kind of started to slide, uh, not quite to an early retirement, but, you know, I, I had done my books, I had done the speaking, I had done the advisory, and 
um, I was kind of like, I was doing good, you know, like you can keep a few clients and you pay your bills. I mean, it's all, it's all good. Right. And I kind of realized uh, after George Floyd's murder and the, the whole movement that came around uh, that year, that really it's the ultimate in white privilege to kind of say, uh, you know, I'm good. I'm kind of done. I'm kind of like, I've, I put in my time, I've made my contribution and I, you know, I'm just going to kind of slide into my retirement period. I'm 63. So I'm not that far away from, from those days. And I just realized, you know, I, I needed to figure out a way to raise the bar on myself. And um, because of that, it was clear that, you know, Black Lives Matter probably wasn't going to, you know, call me up and say, come on down and, you know, manage an initiative with us. And I'd always done well kind of working with high net worth folks, you know, trying to push the boundaries of, you know, what's, quote, appropriate for capital and um, had been an advisor to Tiedemann for several years and started a conversation with Mike Tiedemann around um, his vision for the firm and wanting to grow the firm at scale for impact. And what does it mean to kind of uh, do that? And how do you do that in something that's more of a mainstream kind of Wall Street vehicle as opposed to a purely kind of righteous impact vehicle or what, what I think you guys call uh, native uh, impact funds, right? And I'd spent most of my life with native impact funds and I thought maybe it was time to, to really go more in the belly of the beast. And so uh, they were willing to, to give me the room to move and uh, explore some of the ideas and practices that I wanted to explore. And so it's been a, a great first year and we'll see where it goes from here. You said you wanted to only work with families that were all in on impact. How many kind of families like that do you estimate there are in the world? Oof. I, um, you know, it's it's hard to say, actually, because, uh, again, different folks approach this in different ways. And if you ask a lot of ultra high net worth families, you know, are you an impact investor? You know, do you want to do impact investing? They'd be like, oh, no, you know, like, I don't want to give up anything financially. And that sounds kind of radical and all that. And then you're like, well, you know, are you interested in animal welfare issues? And they're like, well, sure, of course. So, you know, we give to this group and that group. And like, well, you know, do you know what's in your portfolio and whether you're actually like contributing to like, you know, poor animal welfare practices? And like, wow, I hadn't really thought about it that way. But I mean, it's like and all of a sudden, you know, like you can become oriented toward impact and 100 percent before you know it. Uh, I think a lot of folks just haven't taken or had the opportunity to stop and really think about the ultimate purpose of their capital and in some ways the purpose of their lives. They, a lot of folks kind of get on a track, you get on a life, you know, you get married, you know, you have children, you get the mortgage, all of a sudden something happens, you have a liquidity event of one form or another and, and all of a sudden you're like, well, what do I do with this? What do I do now? And I think a lot of folks, um, broadly speaking, have a challenge moving from success to significance. And, and when you kind of take the plunge and start down that path of asking both difficult and uncomfortable questions, then I think it opens up the possibility to really say, well, you know, what's, what is my capital really for? How much is enough? Uh, how do I understand performance? Is performance really just a question of financial return? It doesn't matter like how I get that financial return. So I think it, it's really everybody is on a path. And I think when I was younger, I was very clear on the path that people should take. And I was very vocal <laughs> in terms of my promotion of those ideas. And I think the older I get, uh, the more kind of compassion you have for yourself and for others. And the more you realize that, that everybody is trying to find their way. And my role has been over the years to try to help folks 
uh, almost as a, a Sherpa or a guide or what have you. Um, and at different points, I've had different levels of kind of uh, clarity around what I think we're called to do and be. And at this point, uh, I have clarity, but I have clarity on the questions more than the answers. And so I'm much less quick uh, to promote uh, any given solution or approach and more forgiving, I guess, of other people's kind of solutions and approaches that they pursue. Well, as someone that's perfect, I don't understand what what you uh, what you're talking about. But but let's say you're you're in this imperfect world, and a family calls you up and says, "Hey, you know, I, I just had this liquidity event. I'm kind of impact curious, or or sustainability curious, or blended value curious. Like, how do you convince them that Tiedman is the right place, and or you are the right type of person to be their advisor?" Sure, I don't know that I try. Uh, I've never really sold anything to anybody. Uh, most of the people who come to me personally come because they're attracted to, you know, the ideas that I've promoted or the writing I've done, or they've seen, you know, a video or something like that, and they're intrigued and they want to connect. I think the problem with the space is that we've all started adopting these sales postures that are a little embarrassing, and it's competitive now. So you you almost you know you got to be able to play, but you know what the game is, I think, is something that. Uh, the field of impact investing is at risk of kind of losing the thread on, if you will. And so uh, I don't actually sell. I, I basically help. Uh, I engage. Um, I direct folks to to others or to resources or sometimes, yes, to things that I'm involved in that I think could help them as well. Um, but my starting place is not, you know, I, I need to get this person as a client or something like that. And, you know, we were talking in our email exchange about the you know, what's the pitch, the elevator pitch that, that you use. And I don't, I think that's part of the problem with what's happened over the last 10 years is our, our field has really moved to a very transactive place where, you know, you go out and it's like, you meet folks and it's, you know, what can you do for me? Can you invest in my fund? Can you sit on my board? You know, do you know somebody? Can you introduce me to somebody? Um, and I think it's a shame. I, I think that we used to be much more of a relationship-oriented field of practice because the community was smaller. I think uh, it was it was both easier and worse because it was more fragmented and people were in their individual silos. And so we didn't get the leverage that we could have had from all of our collective efforts. But at the same time, if you were within a given area, you know, CDFIs or community venture capital or, you know, whatever the category, um, you tended to know a lot of the folks in the space because it was a smaller space. And so you could support each other. You could, I mean, remember the, the early days in Silicon Valley, it was all about kind of like, how do we help each other kind of do this work? Because the venture field at that time, 30 years ago, uh, was a very different animal. Um, and today, you know, that culture of transaction, of pitching, of uh, looking for the opportunity and the benefit to yourself before you really start by thinking about where's the other person at, you know, what could you bring to them? And, you know, that's the greater value of the exchange, if you will, not what you get necessarily yourself. So I think that's, that's all part of the conversation around how you engage with folks on a discussion about what is, you know, your approach to understanding meaning, purpose, and value? So totally agree. What I'm trying to question in Silicon Valley has gone away that it's gone for a variety of reasons. Like if you could wave a magic wand for the impact community and say, this is how I'd like great new ideas to get to Tiedman as, you know, Tiedman as sort of a proxy for a large 
asset manager or KP Morgan or one of these other large asset managers. How do you construct an industry where you can have that transaction, you can grow the industry while maintaining that collegiality that or non-transactional approach that you you recall so fondly? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, not just for, for us, but for everybody, I think we need to think of this more as a, as a true ecosystem of actors uh, that bring a variety of things to the, to the experience and to the process uh, that, yeah, can bring capital. But, but, you know, I mean, we all know that money is not really the problem for a lot of funds and a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, the money uh, is part of the, the, what needs to happen. We all need resources to do what we want to do. But at the end of the day, a lot of folks just need like, I don't know, like insight. They need connections. They need opportunities. They, you know, there, there's more to the world than just kind of how much money you deploy or how much money you raise. And I think that, um, you know, having more clarity and focus on the extra financial aspects of, of value and opportunity as opposed to the financial and economic aspects as the determinant of everything relative to how we think about the world is really how we have to move. And I think a systems approach uh, together with an ecosystem understanding of our community where you can, you can literally see the connectivity between different areas of practice, between different firms, between different lives that each of us have lived over the years as we've been present in our space with each other. Um, it's all connected, right? And so, you know, my objection to the kind of simplistic, scientific, reductionist approach to fundraising that Silicon Valley has brought us uh, is that it's this fundamentally a linear, extractive, kind of time zero investment, time 10 harvest kind of mindset, uh, which I find leaves not only a lot of value on the table, but can destroy a lot of value in that process of pursuing the financial return at the expense of everything else. So I think that what our community could benefit from is, so there's a Buddhist saying, don't just do something, sit there. I think we could benefit from not leading with our pitch deck, from not thinking we were God's gift to anti-poverty programs or whatever it is that we're focused on, um, and simply be present uh, with each other in a, a different, more relationship-based way that isn't looking to the transaction as the measure of value, but is looking to the quality of that relationship as the measure of value. And I think in, you know, uh, this is going to sound naive and maybe I am getting long in the tooth, but I mean, in the old days, you know, it wasn't just about like raising the money and doing the deal. It was about being a part of a community of practice and um, really enjoying that and celebrating that uh, and not viewing it as just business. I mean, that's what they did, for God's sakes. That's why we all left this other stuff, right? Uh, it's to come do business differently. And yet somehow uh, we've adopted too much of the mainstream and we've left too much of ourselves behind in the process. I think one of the issues is it's hard to get to scale, right? On one hand, that transition you've made from independent to, to a large asset manager, it's hard to scale industries without some of that transaction. And I'm, how do you think through this journey for the entire industry to, you know, now you've got sort of, you mentioned impact native firms versus some of the big, big firms like Apollo Blackstone opening up or Apollo TPG, Bain uh, opening up impact sleeves. Like as those groups come in, as the impact native firms grow is sort of, and you sort of this kind of combine, you're, you're sitting having been in the impact native for so long uh, and now at a large firm, how do you sort of bridge that gap? 
Uh, call your friends. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, and there's, I guess there's a couple of things. One is I, I, I joke, but I'm serious. I mean, I, there's a group of folks that I get together with probably three times a year for dinner. And we've all known each other for, I don't know, 20, in some cases, 30 years. And we just talked crap about each other and about the field and about, you know, what's happening and, you know, having a space for an honest conversations, uh, I think is really important. And to do that with a set of colleagues that where you have each other's backs, but you're also holding each other to account, I think is part of that issue of how do you maintain integrity at scale. Um, so that's one part of it. I think recognizing that we need to sit more deeply with the questions before we really come to the answers, uh, I think is important. Uh, I think that we we basically lose sight of the fact that if we're serious about systems change, if we're serious about redefining modern financial capitalism, if we're serious about advancing a set of metrics that is able to capture extra financial and financial value, none of us have the answer to all those questions, right? And, and what it is that we seek is out in front of us somewhere and we're much better served by sitting together looking forward as opposed to sitting uh, next to each other, looking at each other, trying to convince each other of each of our relative righteousness with regard to our investment strategy, our approach to metrics, our frame, you know, like all this, all this kind of stuff. And so I think some of it really is a question of you know, how we connect with each other in the course of doing the work. And again, this, this moves into weird space, but I mean, how do we act with compassion for each other and for ourselves in the course of doing that work. I mean, I see people who are newer to the space uh, talking about impact and promoting their firms and their practices and their approach uh, as if, you know, they're God's gift to impact investing or whatever. And on the one hand, it uh, obviously it irritates me. And on the other hand, I'm just kind of bemused because I feel like we we have no capacity for humility in the posture of being engaged. We have to always kind of be the best, the biggest, the brightest, all that kind of stuff. We enter a space we know nothing about and we pass judgment on that space. Uh, one of the, the groups that's launched a multi-billion dollar fund began their press conference right there. That's a scary thing to think that we have press conferences now to announce our, our new fund creation process um, with statements about how there are no good metrics in the space and what's wrong with impact investing is we need new, we, we need better metrics, right? And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, if that were the problem, I don't know about you, I've been involved in like you know, dozens of metrics exercises over the years. I don't think metrics is what's holding us back, right? So the, the fact is everybody is on their own journey. Everybody's on their own learning process. And at different points in each of our lives, we're called to be with other people at different places. And so um, kind of celebrating the journey, uh, celebrating that struggle uh, is how we keep kind of impact with integrity as we move toward greater scale. I really appreciate, uh, and, and I got a chance to listen to some of your recordings in preparation for this, and you bring the Buddha in, Dharma in, uh, and, and a number of wisdom traditions, which I very much appreciate around describing the purpose of capital. I was wondering why you think that the impact community doesn't seem to have as much leadership from faith groups and other groups that might share some of that and may actually help shape the environment of impact investing through leading by faith and leading through those wisdom traditions. You know, I'm I'm struck by the question because I guess uh, maybe we're not looking 
well enough or <laughs> because I, I think there are folks uh, who come from a variety of faith traditions uh, in our community. Uh, maybe some of the institutions aren't leading the way they could, but those institutions really laid the foundation for this whole conversation. I mean, I would go back to 1604 with the creation of the first publicly traded stock company, the Dutch East India Group. And, you know, they went out, they raised the money, they went out on the expedition, they came back very successful, very profitable. And it was discovered that they had basically engaged in piracy, right? Because when they got to the Dutch East Indies, everything was already taken by the Spanish and the Portuguese and, and others, British, I think. And um, so they basically went to war and they, you know, took all this stuff and brought it back to Holland and made a lot of money. And the Mennonites, who were investors in that company, basically called the question and said, wait a minute, like we had invested in this business strategy and you went to war. And that's a violation, not only of the business strategy, but of our principles. And so in one case, you had a Mennonite who sold his shares. In another case, you had a Mennonite who undertook a 10-year uh, lawsuit campaign against the Board of Governors uh, and basically lost at the end of 10 years, but created a hell of a lot of trouble over that 10-year period. And so I think a lot of what we do today has its roots in, in that work. And I see more and more folks, uh, wisdom and money out of the Bay Area, uh, faith-driven investors. Um, you know, there's more and more folks are kind of pushing the envelope on that. So I think it's there. The other thing I would offer is that I think a lot of folks who consider themselves, quote, secular or non-religious actually are profoundly, uh, deeply spiritual and connected they just express it in different ways and terms. And so a lot of this process uh, is one, again, of discovery. And I think that's really, you know, uh, the greatest kind of connecting opportunity we have is to realize that the labels that we put, you know, a faith-based investor, a mission-driven investor, you know, gender lens investing. I mean, these are all things, every time you open your mouth, you basically are splitting the world up, right? Um, and that's why I think it's, it's interesting to kind of not lead with the label and the identity, but lead with the relationship and the process of, of both being and becoming uh, and recognizing that we can, we can all be kind of exploring multiple levels of self and other as we engage in this work. And that is a, a unique opportunity that we have that you don't really have in traditional business. Like they don't, they don't really create a space for that. And so for us to bring, that part of ourselves to the process, I think is a pretty powerful opportunity for each of us in this work. I, I love that story of 1604, by the way. It's like probably my favorite impact investing story. <laughs> and, and I think it really speaks to the importance of values in, in what you invest in. Um, you talk a lot and you know about the how of impact investing versus the why of impact investing. How do you reconcile those two and sort of in the context of creating maximum impact and maximum return? Well, again, I think that answer, or should I say that response, is basically different for different folks in their own process. And the key thing, to my mind, is to, to be reflecting on what ultimately is the purpose. What are we trying to do? I mean, the work that I started in 2000 around uh, the notion of value and blended value for me, is, it has really been a great kind of North Star for my work and how I understand the world. Can you describe blended value? Because I think it's, I, I was going to ask you about that earlier and we kind of jumped around a little bit, but that's like the core of your philosophy. So if you could just describe that quickly. I think that, again, as I was saying earlier, we live in this world that, that is 
built has been built mo on modern terms on a bifurcated value basis that asks you to choose between doing well and doing good, nonprofit, for profit. And when we really stop and reflect on the nature of value, to my mind, we have to come to a place of understanding that value is fundamentally whole and non-divisible and integrated. Uh, you can't think about economics and not think about the social impacts of pursuing kind of uh, certain economic ideologies. You can't, you know, look at the earth and not think about the rights of natural capital to be and to exist and not be valued in traditional terms of financial analysis. And so I, I would argue we all really know that the nature of value is whole and non-divisible. And I would say we spend most of our lives trying to square the circle of that, that our society presents us with. And this is more of a, a Western kind of white male kind of frame that we've created our capital structures around. Um, if you think about First Nations people in the Northwest with the potlatch celebration, uh, you know, part of the, that tradition is based in a, an understanding of value that says that it's a shame to have more money, that you are not a good person if you die rich. And so you come together and you celebrate as a community and you give everything away to your neighbors, right, to celebrate the community. Uh, there are similar practices and concepts in Africa um, and in, in, other, in other parts of the world. So I think a lot of our struggle is really kind of overcoming again, the, the labels and the separation that we embrace with consciousness and with the Western kind of uh, philosophical frame, and certainly with a traditional uh, financial uh, capitalist frame, which is the aberration. I mean, I just want to point out that even though we've had capitalism for 400 some years, that's out of like a 15,000 year time period. Uh, that You know, what's wrong is not the idea of stakeholder capitalism, the aberration was the notion of shareholder capitalism that actually took us astray. And I think brought us to a place of using all of our talents and all of our tools to, to, to divide and to separate and to commoditize as opposed to, to pursue, again, that kind of deeper value proposition. And I think the challenge for us, going back to the first part of your question is basically understanding uh, tools and tasks. And understanding that the fact that we have the ability to create these very brilliant kind of financially engineered products and can label them impact, we can create a whole metrics frame to kind of track impact and convince ourselves of the righteousness of our products and our practices. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, as you know, to Martin Luther King Jr. talked about, uh, we're at risk of having guided missiles and misguided men. Uh, because we kind of separate out uh, this idea of innovation and change from value and the pursuit of what it is we're actually trying to have our lives be about. The quote reminds me that sort of when we think about impact investing and sort of the, the metrics and sort of some of the things that you were discussing before, um, it almost creates like a tax for impact investing firms to go through this extra hurdle that could be established through some of the mechanisms around trust that you mentioned that you kind of started. So, you know, if you're, if you're at a fiduciary advisor, like Tiedman, how do you take what you just talked through and sort of like, okay, I want to bring in these kind of really trust-based mechanisms of investing into sort of a fiduciary concept? Sure. Well, I mean, in our case, 
uh, we have catalytic capital as a core part of the portfolio construction process with clients. Uh, we, we don't have that as something you talk about after you've made all your money. <laughs> uh, it, you know, blended finance is one of like four or five sleeves of kind of portfolio uh, construction. And define catalytic, catalytic capital for you, but like you basically set it, you go say, hey, here's your money in treasuries, here's your money in private equity, and here's your money in catalytic. And actually the irony, of course, is some of those perform financially better than some of the other ones do because- I think there, there, it's a place where we can place things that the market or analysts view uh, uh, as having kind of greater risk. Uh, and a lot of times, I would argue, the reason that impact investing has done so well in the last you know years of its kind of ramping up is that the mainstream market kind of didn't understand it, uh, misprice the the value and the risk of the strategies that are there. You think about microfinance, uh, how it was you know pioneered with philanthropic capital, building up you know debt paper basically in these institutions. That then all of a sudden, like you had these you know bond traders look at that and say, well, wait a minute, like we could package that and sell it as you know microfinance bonds into Europe and stuff, right? And so all of a sudden, kaboom, you know. But initially, for years, they didn't get it, right? And if you look, uh, you know, Ron Cordes tells the story, Ron Cordes, who uh, has been involved with Impact Assets and a number of other kind of leading institutions over the years, tells the story of how, I think it was in 2007 or something, over the, the firm objections of his, you know, financial team, he decided he wanted to go into microfinance bonds and went and, you know, bought whatever number that he did. And when it, they went through the financial crisis, the only part of his portfolio that didn't tank and that was truly non-correlated with the market were, you know, microfinance bond notes, right? And so I think it's just, uh, it's part of our advantage to be able to explore in the catalytic space, capital structures, funds, managers, uh, strategies that in a traditional frame are kind of like, hmm, I don't know if that should be in the portfolio, but actually maybe it should. And, and again, a lot of those are private market uh, frames where that's where folks have more fun. They feel more connected. I mean, there's a lot more stuff you can do in that area. So for impact investors who want to be closer to the capital, they want to draw a short line between the investment of their money and the creation of ecosystem and community level impacts. Um, catalytic can be a, an interesting place to play. One of the things in your storied career you've done is help create impact asset, which you've mentioned a few times. What is the origin story of of that uh, of that organization and that list? Well, it's a it is a I guess you'd call it a program initiative of impact assets. And uh, I mean the origin story, and I'm not I have to think back. Probably it must be like 2010 or something like that. Um, sitting around a table. I can't remember what, even what city we were in, probably New York or something like that. And just talking about how frustrating it's been for folks who wanted to come in and invest in impact funds to find funds, to understand like where to begin the process and all that. And so we thought, geez, you know, we should create just a list of a starting place that would have kind of representative funds that would go through our own investment committee kind of process of review um, but would be a starting place. So if you were interested in sustainable finance, you know, here's four funds that you could start at. Uh, you want ag, here's four ag funds. You want, you know, gender finance, you got, you know, these funds. And so the idea would be not 
to have a top 10 list or to have an investable index, but just a, a landscape overview for folks who are coming into the space and looking for an orientation. And um, so that's where we started. The irony, of course, is that I, I'm not really a big list guy. I don't really, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I kind of fell into being, you know, kind of charged with the process of convening this thing. And it's it's really ironic because it's just not something that I really thought I would ever do. And I've done it now for like 11 years or 12 years or something. And um, and I will say it's gotten, to my mind, it's become more and more fun every year. And over the past few years, we've really kind of reinvigorated the roster by uh, creating a uh, an emerging manager uh, category as well as an emeritus category because we've had just uh, you know dozens and dozens of funds apply. Uh, we don't go out and we don't have a big team, so we have to let people apply and come in. Uh, but the numbers that have been applying have just increased phenomenally over the past few years and given us the opportunity to really break out and profile different types of managers doing different types of things. So it's it's. And it's been super well received, which is nice as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I should have said earlier. Full disclosure: Achieve Partners uh, is is a is on the list. So thank you for that. It's been we've gotten a number of pings because of that. I, I guess since you do manage quote unquote the list, and I know you don't think you ever wanted to be a list manager, but what are some of the biggest gaps that you perceive in the investing universe for private markets? I think the, the biggest gap, the thing that, well, let me, I don't know if that it's, I don't know, like different people would look at that and be like, well, it's this, this, and this, right? So this is just kind of like my own bias relative to that question. But I think that the gap is that more and more of us are looking for a way to approach impact investing from a systemic and a systems thinking kind of frame and not thinking in terms of sleeves of asset classes and strategies, but rather the lens of impact investing that cuts across and wanting to look at how do we deploy capital with consideration of that systems frame as opposed to a asset class or a single thematic frame, you know, like microfinance or community development finance or whatever, because we all know that it's all one, right? It's all one, it's all connected, it's all part of a whole. And so why invest in the parts as opposed to invest through the whole, you know, via parts, if you will. And so I think that the gap is looking for funds and strategies that connect the dots across related areas of interest. So I'm thinking environmental justice. I'm thinking, you know, a whole host of gender related issues that show up across, you know, the platform. Um, and so I think now the trick is, I have, let me just say right up front, I am the worst kind of like framer of market opportunities. So don't run out and create a fun strategy based on what I'm saying right here. <laughs> but um, I think that increasingly people are, are recognizing the interconnectedness of the challenges we have and are looking for opportunities to deploy capital on terms that connect the parts as opposed to contribute to a singular kind of a false focus, if you will, on a, a particular kind of aspect of an issue as opposed to related aspects of, of critical issues. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. What I'm struggling with a little bit as you're talking through is how you map that up with how allocators traditionally would think of a fund. Um, and then that comes back to like, are there enough people who are on the Tiedman platform advised by Jed Emerson 
who uh, have catalytic capital as sort of a, a bucket to create enough demand for those types of products? Well, I think the, how do I say this? I think the demand is latent. I, I think it is it is there, but it's kind of, it has yet to kind of rise up. And I think in the next 10 years, it's going to rise up with a force because more and more fiduciaries uh, are women, more and more fiduciaries are younger fiduciaries, more and more fiduciaries uh, are uh, people from communities that have been traditionally under-resourced that are now receiving more resources and more backing for firms and funds and businesses that uh, come out of those communities. And so I think you're going to have you're just going to see like more demand that's cross-cutting and intersectional um, than traditionally kind of like, this is how we think about it. This is how it's done. Um, especially as you get into the whole climate crisis question and the, the time horizon issues, we don't have time to find one strategy that's the silver bullet. We've got to work with silver buckshot kind of like across the portfolio and understand what that means uh, and have theories of change that basically are are elevated and connected as opposed to, you know, descendant and, and separated. Yes. <laughs> so you, you, you have been a mentor to so many over the years. Who were your mentors growing up in this industry? Well, my mentors, well, first off, my mentors came well before, you know, I, you know, began participating in this with a, a generation of folks who really came of age, like in the 90s and in the 80s and kind of like began doing this. I mean, my mentor really is a guy named Min Yasui, um, who ran the community relations program for the city and county of Denver, where I interned when I was a teenager. And this guy, man, he was incredible. Like you'd come in, you have to come in, you know, I was paid by the hour, right? So you come in, you have to like sign in and stuff. And you'd go in, and men would sign in with everybody else, right? First off, which was kind of cool. But he would sign in at like 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m. I mean, the guy was just like phenomenal um, and super funny, really charismatic, but also deadly serious. And he and his family were in the, uh, the camps here in the U.S., the internment camps, uh, during World War II. And he was one of, I think, three or four folks who filed. He was an attorney. He went on and became an attorney. And he was one of three or four folks who filed the lawsuits against the U.S. government for reparations around the internment uh, process. And um, he was phenomenal in terms of being able to connect people across communities of interest and practice. And so, you know, that's really kind of like my first mentor. I think that in the, this field, and again, this is going to sound a little weird, but my mentor was our community of practice. Like, uh, you know, part of what was so great about going to these meetings with, you know, gosh, uh, just investors circle and, and social venture partners and, you know, just different organizations that kind of came up during that period was this, the small intimate nature of some of these conferences and you'd go and there'd be like 50 people, there'd be 70 people <laughs> and you'd sit at like a, you know, whatever, a Marriott and, you know, like drink bad coffee and, you know, flat beer and just talk about like what you were going to do to like mess up mainstream capitalism um, you know, it, it was just great. And, and to learn from each other and to be open to that process. And I think that's part of what we're losing by virtue of the mainstreaming of the, of the community is that, you know, again, you get folks who maybe aren't as committed to the community as, as uh, many of us have hoped to be over the years. Um, and so anyway, so I think we have an opportunity to learn from each other at a whole nother level now. And 
through technology, through you know the different social media platforms, through the connectivity that we have with you know your organization and other uh, associations that are out there. Um, we need to really nurture and value that connection and ability to learn to, together as we go, uh, not to be kind of like I'm mentor, you're mentee, but to be more in a process of co-creation and discovery. Um, and that is just super powerful on a whole bunch of levels. That is brilliant. Um, I, I love the, the, the story of your, your first mentor in Denver. As we kind of come to the close here, if you met a recent earnest MBA graduate, perhaps from Stanford, uh, which I am biased towards, and wanted to become a Jed Emerson-like figure in the, in the space, what would you advise them to do as their first job out of business school or shortly after? I don't know. I mean, uh, my first real job was uh, starting a program for homeless youth and teen prostitutes in San Francisco. Uh, I, I, think, I see the direct linear line to impact investing. Thank you. You just I was gonna painted say. the picture. We appreciate it. <laughs> Um, I mean, this is part of the problem is that you, you can't do what I did or what people my age have done over the course of the last, whatever, 30 years today, because it was a whole different game. And I think that um, we had, you know, opportunities and dysfunctionality that were there that we had to kind of manage our way through uh, via our career that I kind of, it's just so different today with the institutions and opportunities that are out there. Uh, the other thing for me personally is, uh, and again, I, I hope not to offend anybody by saying this, but I, I kind of dumb fucked my way to the top. You know, it's like, you, you know, you just kind of, I just had these different opportunities. It's the saying, uh, fortune favors the prepared mind, right? And I spent a lot of time like thinking and reflecting and exploring different things. And then all of a sudden, like something would pop and you'd be like, hey, I'd like to go do that. Um, I also um, was single for the better part of my life. I, you know, I didn't get married till I was 50. Um, and I think in part, I paid a price for that in terms of uh, personally, but also I was just so impassioned about our work and, and you know, uh, the ability to fly around all over the place and connect with people and, and be a part of conferences and events and launching funds and things like that. I just kind of lost myself in that part of the journey. And I think, um, you know, there's, that can be good. And it was, it, it was great, but it also came with a price. So I think you have to be kind of clear around what you really value in your own world and your own life and what you're trying to pursue. And sometimes you don't know until in retrospect, you look back and you go, wow, you know, like, I'm so lucky, like this happened or that happened. And for me personally, I feel like I'm just incredibly lucky to have become, to have found this community, to have come into it as part of a generation of folks who together have created some phenomenal stuff over the years. I mean, it's, it's, when you think about where we are today, it's just shocking to me uh, in a lot of ways, even with all the issues and challenges, even with, um, you know, what it is that we still have yet to do, but wow, like I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And so I think that however you get here, you got to get in and start playing um, because it's, it's just a blast, you know? What was the what was the Buddhist quote? Don't don't do something. Sit there. Don't do something. Sit there. Sit, sit in the conversation. Yeah. As you look out, and this will be my final question for you, um, as you kind of pull together these different streams, um, if you were to say what you would like to change most over the next five years in the industry, what would that be? I would like to 
change how we think about the process of uh, portfolio construction and due diligence and research. I think the the work of uh, the uh, due due diligence 2.0 commitment is really important in kind of, are you familiar with that uh, practice? Basically, it's saying that the way that firms approach vetting fund managers is fundamentally has embedded bias in it that prevents kind of uh, new promising managers from having access to capital and from from becoming really a part of that process. And so I think in five years, I hope that we've done a lot to kind of blow out our frame of what is the aperture through which we're looking at funds and strategies and managers through in order to, to really go kind of like beyond the deck, if you will, uh, to the person and the people in the communities that are really kind of um, just have some phenomenal uh, talent and passions and potentials that I think the mainstream is just totally missing. Um, and so I think that's part of it. I think as related to that, this whole idea of leaving the notion of the traditional ways of investing in favor of embracing more of a ecosystems and systems level frame is going to be very powerful and and really is the only way we're going to be able to address a lot of these issues because they are fundamentally connected and we are uh, all part of the whole. And so that's the part that I hope uh, continues to move forward in our own, not only consciousness, but in our practices as well. Well, from your lips to, uh, I'm not sure what the right appropriate answer is because we're, we're clearly praying to a different different uh, spirit here, um, but um, to the Dharma and the way that we all must follow. So uh, Jed, I really appreciate you doing this and all that you've done uh, and all the mentorship you've provided to so many over the years. And so thank you for being part of the community and doing this podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and uh, my best to everybody. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.